Everything is vipaka. No, that doesn't mean you should just accept everything as vipaka. Does it? No, we are intelligent human beings. We have the choice. We can make choices. We can change the path. We can change the course of vipaka. If you've noticed, that is why whenever I come here, I first tap the mic before I move the the neck, the gooseneck. Why do I do that? Yes, I know it's all vipaka. I can bring you all sorts of vipaka. Shall I bring you some uncomfortable vipaka? <laughs> That's why I tap on the mic just to make sure it's switched off before I turn it round. There is vipaka to suffer. There is. But there is also vipaka to be comfortable. But because we as human beings are capable of bearing drushti, that drushti can change the course of vipaka. That is exactly what we are doing here. That is why you come to the monastery. That is why you listen to the talks. To change your drushti. Because in changing your drushti, your views, the views you hold about everything, existence, the world around you, everything. You can change the cause of vipaka. So much so that at one point, if you change your drushti enough, no matter how much vipaka there is to suffer in the four great hells, you no longer have to bear the consequences of your own actions. How good is that? We are not fatalists. We don't think that once it's done, it's done. It's, you know, that is fate. We don't accept that. We think we can make our destiny. We can design our future. By that much, we are capable. We can chart the course of our own future. We are sailors. We are not the boat. We are sailors. Are you a sailor? Then chart a suitable course for your boat and take it across this ocean of sansar because you are the sailor. Here we learn how to sail. And there's the best sailor we've ever seen. With him there was no one to teach him the path. I want to teach him to find the ropes, and now he did that all by himself. And then he spent the rest of his life doing what? Absolutely. Teaching others how to do the same. So we're not fatalists. Don't accept that, no matter who tells you. Because, you know, when that's a, that's a misconception that some people can fall into. When we say everything is Vipaka, then we just have to surrender to Vipaka. No, we don't have to surrender to Vipaka. We can choose our Vipaka. But it is not you who chooses the vipaka. That is the concept to understand. It is the drushti that chooses the vipaka. Before we do that, because I can get carried away quite easily. Let's all take a moment then to bring our palms together in veneration of the greatest sailor that mankind has ever seen our teacher, our master and our guide. We are here to learn how to sail. 
And that is our purpose of being here. So as we make this gesture of veneration, let us also remind ourselves our purpose of being here and to take an oath, a pledge of allegiance to the Dhamma and to the path and free ourselves from samsara once and for all. Let us take a moment to do that now then. Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhasa so I said earlier that it is not us who chooses our vipaka. And I said it is the drushti that chooses the vipaka. Just take a moment to see if that makes sense to you. Because whenever we talk about choice, it is hard not to think about who it is that makes the choice. Isn't it? The moment we talk about choices, in fact, you know, especially if you speak to an audience of young, young people, then sometimes we go to schools and talk to them, and we ask them, what do you like? You know, we try to get to this point of happiness is what we're all aiming for. And we ask people, ask young children, what, how are you all so different from each other? And one of the first answers you get back in response is, our likes and our dislikes, our choices, the choices we like to make, our preferences. The problem with this way of thinking is that now, even when I ask you what do you think about choices and I, the moment I came here, I started talking about the choices we make and we can choose our own destiny, we can choose our own future, we can choose the journey that we're on. You can't help but thinking that there is someone who's making this choice. So choices have an owner, don't they? Whose choice? If someone has, say, for instance, made a choice about something, let's say they've chosen to, uh, say, what's for dinner? Hmm? Say you get home from work and dinner is made, or perhaps you want to order takeaway, right? And uh, when you get home, it's, it's delivered, and maybe if you didn't like it, or even if you did like it, you might ask, whose choice is this? It's a good choice. Whose choice is this? It's a good choice. Not only is it a good choice, but you need to know whose choice it is. You can't help but thinking that everything in this world has an owner. Don't you feel that way? Can you name one thing in this room that doesn't have an owner? What about this Buddha statue? Don't you think it has an owner? You'll say the monastery owns it, won't you? This pen, who's the owner? The monastery owns it. What about the clip? Yeah, the monastery owns the pen and the clip belongs to the pen, so therefore the clip belongs to the monastery. There's a bacterium on this clip, just one. Just one bacterium. Who does that belong to? The monastery. Don't you take that away with you. 
What about the roti? The rotis that we make in the evening. Who does that belong to? Monastery, right? At what point does it become yours? After you eat it? Once you take it to your hand. Once you take it to? Which hand? My hand. Once you take it to my hand, then it becomes yours. Says who? Says the owner of the hand. So if everything you take into your hand is yours, then there would nothing be there would, there would be nothing called theft. Theft would not be a concept at all. Because the moment you take something into your hand, it's yours. Then the person, the rightful owner of it, has no has no say about it. You know, they have no claim to it, right? If the moment something touches your hand, or the moment you hold something in your hand, it belongs to you now, right? then you could come and pick anything up you see in this room, and I would no longer be able to claim it to be mine. So, when does something belong to you? When it comes into your hand? No. So, when does something come belong to you then? Hmm? Why do you look like? I've asked you to, uh, I don't know, do a somersault or something. <laughs> because you're wondering, I feel this sense of ownership, but I don't know when it begins. Where does it, belong? Where does it start? Where does it end? Now, as young children, you would have fought for toys, right? For your playthings when you were younger. Do you still fight for them? Now you don't fight for toy things, you fight for real things. First you fought for the toy car, now you fight for the same, same, but just bigger. Those days you fought in your toy houses, playhouses, but now you fight for big, big houses. Yeah, people, they, they, know, they don't grow up. <laughs> children don't grow up, they're always children. Because to grow up, you need to mature. And to grow, and that growing up requires the Dhamma. The amount by which you have let go, or as you have let go, is the amount by which you have grown up. Meaning, you have matured. So that is the extent of your maturity. You know, when you see people say, right, he is very mature, they, they, she is very mature. What do you mean by that? Just ignore what I said for a moment earlier. When you say someone's very mature, what you're saying is they're able to look at a problem broad-mindedly. They're not narrow-minded. Yeah? They take a, a considered approach to problems. They're very discerning when it comes to solving a problem. They don't just take a very narrow-minded, one-sided view at things. Yeah? They, they're able to understand things from another perspective. That's what you say, right? Meaning, they don't hold fast just to their opinion they're able to let go. That's what you mean by that. They're not, very, they're not too opinionated about something. That's when you say someone's very childish, so immature, you say, because they just hold on to their opinion. So why do we educate ourselves? Why do we learn? Why do we go to school? Why do we go to uni? Why do we, why do we broaden our horizons and learn things? It gives us the ability to look at things from another perspective. See, we read books. Hmm? We learn about what other people have said about the world. 
the great philosophers of the past, educated people, what have they said about the world? And we learn these things because it gives us another perspective, another angle from which we can look at things, meaning it challenges our opinion about things. And if we accept those opinions, if we accept those views, now we don't just hold on to a single view. We are able to now look at things more broadly. Then we say, he's mature. Grow up, man. Why are you behaving like a child? Sometimes you might have heard people say, either to others or to yourself. So the, the amount by which you are able to let go is an indicator of your maturity. So a fully matured person is a who? Is an arhat, absolutely. A fully matured person is an arhat. Why do people struggle to let go of their opinions? Why do people struggle to let go of the way that they think about things? Now, you know, perhaps there are those among you in the audience who struggle with something like this. Right? When you think about something, it has to be done that way. Right? If I make a choice, if I make a decision, it has to be done that way. And you feel very uncomfortable when it gets challenged. Been there, done that? No? This is the first time you're hearing this? Oh, as you're hearing this, you think, oh, yeah, I know someone like that. Not me. I'm not like that. Then that is my opinion, and I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> not me. Just, just, it's just the others. Right? I'm all right. Do you struggle when you, make a, when you have an opinion about something and, and that is challenged? Guru Andhra always tells me, right, when you, when you make a decision or a choice about something, make sure that you make it like leaving your footprint on the sand. So that at any moment that you take your, your foot back, right, it can, it can be erased. Don't make a footprint in a concrete. And you leave it long enough, then it hardens. After that, you can't change it without breaking a few stones or maybe breaking a few bones. So whenever you make a choice, see if you are able to just make a, you know, it's like a, like a line drawn in the sand or even better, a line drawn in water. But it's one thing to say this, it's another thing to be able to actually internalize this. Now, you might, be, you might have gone on management training programs, right, things like the communication management, leadership skills and so on, where people say, you know, when you make a choice, leave room for others to influence those choices. Leave room for others to make some amendments, right? And it's so easy to listen to it. You, 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 you listen to it and go, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, I should be able to do it. And I'm going to start doing it from now on. You say that. Yeah, it's one thing to say it. But when you start to do it... Oh, that's difficult. Something as simple as, you know, which seat or which side of the bus you want to sit on your way somewhere. And do you get the window seat or do you get the seat by the aisle? Even something so simple like that. Something so simple like that. Or maybe, you know, something as simple as, well, you, you know the choices that you have to make and where you get stuck, right? Shall we go Monday or Tuesday? In hindsight, oftentimes you think, I should have just let it go. 
Why did I, why did I hold on to it so much? Why did I fight for it so much? Was it, was it worth it? You ask yourself. But that is always in hindsight. In the moment, in the heat of the moment, you don't feel that way. In the heat of the moment, you feel you have to win. Sometimes, and there are even times, now see if you've ever caught yourself in this situation, you've realized that the choice you're, you've just suggested is a, is a rather silly one. But, if you let go now, <laughs> what happens? You look like a fool. So, you can't let go of that fight. Now, until the last drop, you'll have to fight. And, and the next thing you say is just going to make you even look like an even bigger fool. Because now you're fighting for something very foolish. But you just keep on saying and pretending you don't know that it's wrong. See if you've ever found yourself in situations like that. In, internally, it's a battle. You know what you're saying is wrong. And you're hoping, please don't accept what I'm saying, because if we decide to do that in the end, <laughs> it's all going to be a mess. But now that I've put my position forward, I have to guard it. I have to defend it. Why? This is jara. Marana. But whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't jara marana to do with the body? Isn't that about decay and old age and death? No? What's that got to do with an opinion? It is time to redefine our understanding of Jaramarana. It is time for us to redefine our understanding of suffering. <clears throat> People take the concept of suffering very lightly. You know, very superficially. And just by, by experience, people think that I've understood what suffering is. Now I have to go and ordain and become a monk and do all that good stuff. And then they come into the sasana and they realize, I haven't even begun yet. Guru Hanra always tells us, you know, you come to the sasana and then you begin. You don't begin and come to the sasana. <laughs> you come to the sasana and then you begin. It's like the party, right? When you have the party, after you get to the party. But you get dressed, you go buy something nice, maybe buy something to take to the place, right? flowers, some food, maybe a bottle of wine or whatever. That was not a recommendation, by the way. Just saying, people do those things. Then you go to the party. But the party doesn't begin until you get to the party. That's why that is called the party. Not on the, en route to party, the party is when you're at the party. So, see if you've ever found yourself in, in situations like that. And I'm, I'm dishing out medicines. This, this, is, this is treatment. This is the cure. Because if you've been there once, you'll be there again. Right? You know, we just keep going around in circles. That is what sansara is after all, right? It's just a big circle. It's just so big that you don't realize that you've been there before. Like a hamster. You've seen those hamsters in those... Circular cages, they just keep running. Right? They just don't know they've been there before. Or like a goldfish that swims from one side of the tank to the other. This, this, this is how big the tank is. This just this big. One foot. Right? They'll swim to one side and go, oh, that's the end. Let me turn around. Oh, never seen that before. <laughs> they go back again. 
always a new journey. Now, until you heard about sansara, right from the Buddha's teachings, did you ever think that this moment has happened before? Like this, you with the same name, until you heard that story, maybe by reading the scriptures, maybe reading the Jataka tales, maybe listening to a sermon one day, maybe Sasaraganadunu or whatever, right? Until then, did you ever think that, me, like this is the same name before? No, can't be. Can't be. I am unique. I am unique. There's only one like me. There's only one like me. Never been before, never will be in the future. I am just the one. This is how you feel. On one occasion, a man goes and he, he decides where he wants to be buried when he's dead. Well, some of you may have heard the story. Right? So he chooses his, his place of uh, burial. So he goes, he travels around the country looking for a good place, a good spot, final resting place. And then finally, you know, Rashi luck, he meets the Buddha. And he tells the Buddha, Venerable Sir, you seem to be a learned, educated man by the look of it, six foot tall. I have, a, I have made a choice. I'm old now, I'm weak now, I'm frail now, so I have decided that when I'm dead, that is the spot I'll be buried. Apparently, no one's been buried there before. It is my spot on this earth, and I, this, I choose to claim it until the end of eternity. It shall be mine, and no one else shall be buried there. Not now, not ever, in the future. Now, if I were the Buddha, I am not the Buddha. If I were the Buddha, I'd go... <coughs> But of course, the Buddha doesn't do that. I just sneer at him. And then he'd ask me, why? And then I'd tell him. I'll tell him what the Buddha said. So what the Buddha said was, you fool. You. You. By the same name. Bearing the same gender. Having born into the same caste. On this same land, you have been buried there for more than 500 times in your time in Sansara. What are you talking about, man? That shocked him. That shocked him totally, shocked him to the core. He couldn't believe what he heard. And I thought I was going to be buried somewhere where no one had been buried before. I, myself, with the same, there in the same name. What about me with another name? Hmm? Been buried there before? Absolutely. But me, with the same name, been buried there. That was a shocker for this man. So, you know, when you look for a unique place in this world, right, when, you, when you feel that you are... You are the one. Which one? This one? I am, I am the one. Right? When you feel like you are the one, do yourself a favor and give yourself a knock, a, a, a nice, a, a big, bold knock on your head and come to your senses. Because that you are not the one. 
You are not a singularity. You're just a commonality. You're not a singularity. You're very common. No one is a singular. You're very common. You're just made of the same stuff everyone else is. We need to come to terms with this. Our understanding of this is what's going to set us free. So I was talking about, you know, when you feel like you have an opinion, you, you have a choice, and that choice is challenged, when your opinion is challenged, right, it hurts, does it not? It hurts particularly if, you, if it is not your place to stand up to it. Now that's very difficult. If it's not your place to stand up to it, if it's not your say that is the last say, Now, you know, you'll, be, you'll find yourself in various communities, right? Now, in the family, the family is one community, it's an organization, the smallest unit. But in your family, there's probably going to be someone who, who has the final say. Hmm? It's probably not you anymore anyway. That's why you, you're coming here now, right? As you're coming to the sermons, I suspect that that is not you anymore. But perhaps you used to be the one who had the final say. Sometimes, you know, you put in a lot of work, a lot of effort, and decide, plan, everything, and then you just, it's just time to inform that person, and you go and inform them. You know, uh, say you're the, let's say you're the husband, and it's the wife who decides, makes the final choice, right? So you plan everything, you decide to go on a trip, you know, where, the, where you're going to take the children, where you're going to stop for lunch, where you're going to stop for tea, right? You decide the whole lot, right? And then you plan it all out and you go and say, honey, I've got a suggestion to make. I've been thinking, you know, this long weekend we've got coming up, right? I've been thinking, why don't we go on a, a nice uh, road trip? Hmm? I've, I've planned it all out. So she's just what, sat there listening to you. Listen to all you have to say, right? Emotionless. Isn't that terrible, isn't it? When we are talking to someone and they just don't show any emotion, you know, approval, no, neither approval nor rejection, right? just a blank face. Uh, you don't know where you stand then. <laughs> do I continue or do I stop? You, are you, do you like what, I'm, what you're hearing right now or do you not like what, I'm, what you're hearing right now? Should I change? Uh, should I maybe change course? What? You just continue. Right. That's why it's nice to give a nod once in a while when you're talking to someone. Right. It, it just encourages them by giving your consent sometimes. So otherwise people feel very vexatious. They do. Imagine talking to someone for 15 minutes and they're just like this. Hmm? You can really drive them up the wall. So, you know, it's all part of compassion. <laughs> Even if you don't agree, at least, you know, give them a nod. Just to inform them that you're listening to them. Otherwise, people really vex out. They do. Otherwise, they'll start nodding on your behalf. They'll say it and they'll go, yeah, so we are going on this trip, right? They'll start nodding on your behalf. Huh? So you, you planned it all out and then you go... No, I was just taking a mosquito. <laughs> that was not part of the presentation. So you go to your wife and you play it all out, 
play back, you know, what you've decided, and then she listens to all that and she goes, no. This weekend we have to clean the house. Not going out. Now there's a clash. Clash of clans. And there's a clash. What do you do now? Hers versus mine. If you don't concede, then perhaps you might have to go in hers. A hers, that is. <laughs> so, you know, we come here to learn how to conduct ourselves, not how to change others. Yeah, so let's all make sure we understand that. Your purpose of being here, I invite you here because all I do here is teach you how to conduct yourself. How do you change your thinking patterns? Because that, as, as difficult as it might be, is the most successful path out of any problem. It might be challenging, it might be difficult, but that is the most successful path out of any problem. If you can change the way you think. So this is not a, a training program where we teach you how to manipulate others. This is not a training program where we teach you how to, how to influence others. Hmm? There will be training programs for that, how to win friends and influence people. This is not that. This is about how do you change the way you approach a problem through your understanding of anicca, dukkha and anatta, through your understanding of manifestations. How do you take a different approach to problems so that when you feel, like we discussed last week, you are a victim of your circumstances, how do you find the exit part? How do you find the exit route out of this victimized situation? You feel victimized. Then it's so that you don't have to keep running around like a headless chicken. You don't have to keep you know, throwing your arms and legs about. I'm trying to equip you so that in the situations where you find yourselves challenged, threatened even, and very uncomfortable, opinions clash, beliefs clash, ideas clash, right? in those situations, how do you come out unscathed? How do you come out hurt-free? Sometimes nowadays, perhaps you come out, but you come out hurt. And sometimes maybe it will take you the best part of the, whole, of the day, or maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe even months to recover. No? Sometimes, you know, in those situations, ultimately you surrender, you go, oh, you know, that's what you have, fine, whatever, whatever. Right? And you, you, you just, you accept. But that is not truly accepting. You withdraw, really. That's what you do. You just withdraw. And you accept. You accept, but you don't agree. I'm not trying to teach you how to agree. That is not my, this is not the lesson here. How do you agree to any situation? It's not what I'm trying to teach you here. What I'm trying to teach you here is there will be times when what you think is right has not been the decision by others. And you know it is right. Perhaps. You know it is right. For instance, I say two and two. You say four. Everyone else in this room says five. 
So what is the right answer? The majority? Hmm? No. The majority is not the right answer always. That, that is not true. Just because everyone thinks so doesn't make it the right answer. The right answer is the right answer. It's the rational answer. It's the logical answer. It's the right answer. There can't be two truths. There's only one truth. Then you'll ask why the four noble truths. <laughs> There's only one truth. And the truth is the right answer. So four is the right answer. Now what if I said two and two from here on you have to bear as five. Right? How can you walk out of this room not vexed about it? In your mind you know that is not the right answer. But from here on you shall conduct yourself as if two and two was five. I want you to be able to do that. So for instance, when you go to the shop, because now I have asked you to accept that two and two is five. When you go to the shop, right, you, get, you buy two toffees. One is two rupees. When was that? 1970? <laughs> you buy two, two toffees. One is two rupees. The other is also two rupees. Right? So you ask how much? Two. This one, two? Yeah, okay. Here's five rupees. And you walk away. And then the shopkeeper says, hey, wait, wait for your change, sir. I say, no. You say, no. From here on, I bear that two and two is five. So I have no change. And be okay with that. And be okay with that. You know it's wrong. You know two and two can never add up to five. It is always four. But can you be okay with that? This is where your opinions and others' opinions, and there's a clash, and you can still be okay with that without getting all worked up inside. For you to be able to do that, you need to get out of this trapped mindset, the victim mindset, and see everything, everything, as simply a series of causes and effects manifesting a result. Then you don't have an ownership to it. When you don't have an ownership to something, you are free. Because when you own something, now you, who's, the, who's the caretaker? Who's got to keep it safe? Who's got to guard it? You've got to guard it. Yeah? So if two and two is four, is your answer, is your opinion, is your choice, is your decision. It is what you hold true, and that is your opinion. Now you have to guard it. Because it is your idea. It becomes your idea. What is true is another thing, is another matter. Yes, universally two and two is four, absolutely, I agree. But there comes a point where that becomes your opinion. It is not just an opinion. It is not just a fact, it becomes your fact, my fact. So two and two is four, and I'm not willing to change it because it is what I hold true. This is called drushti upadana. A view that you take and then you cling on to it. That is why you get hurt when you are challenged. You take a view and you cling on to it. Just Upadhan. What is Upadhan? This is clinging. Meaning, you know, when you take something and you cling to it, what is this an indicator of? Ownership, absolutely. Thank you. It's, a, it's, an, it's an indicator of ownership. So when you take a view and cling on to it, now it becomes whose view? It becomes my view. And when something becomes my view, now you have to guard it 
you have to defend it, you have to fight for it. And when something untoward happens, now you have to suffer for it as well. That is why you should all aspire to free yourselves from this ownership mentality. Ask yourselves, where, where in life do you still have, you know, little nooks and corners where you still feel like you own things? Right from material things, to human things, to ideas, opinions, thoughts, even those things. Because an arahant doesn't cling on to anything, including opinions, including views. No matter what you cling on to, all that is going to do is hurt you. That's all clinging does. Clinging doesn't do anything else. So what are the disadvantages of attachment? Suffering. What are the advantages of attachment? Because whenever you consider something, you have to, you know, pros and cons, right? Hmm? So you know the cons of attachment. What are the pros of attachment? <laughs> I wish. What are the pros of attachment? There are none. There are none. What are the, what are the pros of clinging? None. Upadana? None. Avidya? None. There are no pros. There are no advantages. There are only disadvantages. Reflect on this truth. In every moment that you can avail yourself, reflect on this truth. Reflection, of, reflection on this truth is constantly running wisdom. You're sharpening the tool of wisdom in your mind. And every moment you do that, it gets sharper and sharper and sharper. And when problems come your way, you don't have to come out of them retrospectively. You can come out of them in that moment. You don't trap yourself. Because it is only you who traps yourself. So now, if you can remind yourself of a situation where you had an opinion and that clashed with somebody else's, right? Does that at least happen once a year? At least once a year? Hmm? <laughs> once every leap year at least? So, you know, at least if it happens once a year for you, right? Where you have an opinion and someone else has a different opinion and then Sometimes it is not your place to make the final call and someone else makes the final call and now you feel very uncomfortable about it, very unsettled. Hmm? In those moments, your instinct will tell you, let me now try and find a way to change him or her. Let me try and find a way to find somebody else to convince them to change their opinion. If I can't, then I'm sure somebody else can. That is how the world works. Don't you be that person. Then you are not a sravaka of the Tathagata. You are a Mara Sravaka. Mara Sravaka. <laughs> if you want to be a Tathagata Sravaka, only use the Dhamma in your defense and nothing else. Because what is the Buddha's legacy? Hmm? The Dhamma, right? That is his legacy. In fact, you can only call yourselves a Buddhist when applying the Dhamma. Because you are not a Buddhist, in fact. 
it is a chitta that is Buddhist. There are no Buddhist people. If I as a monk go on a killing spree, or steal things, or lie, or backstab, am I a Buddhist? No. So it is not me as a monk. A monk is not always Buddhist. See? A monk is not always Buddhist. What is Buddhist is not a person. What is Buddhist is a chitta. A chitta is Buddhist. So in that chitta, if your only refuge is the noble triple gem, meaning freedom, nivana, nibbana, right? and the dhamma to get you there, and the practice, the Buddha dhamma and the sangha, right? If that is your only refuge in those moments, now that is a Buddhist. That is an upasaka. Now you you know you consider yourselves to be upasakas and upasikas. Remember what Guru Hanru taught us: what is the making of an upasaka? Right? To associate. Yeah? The association of the Noble Triple Gem is what makes one an Upasaka. So what do you associate the Noble Triple Gem with? Your left hand or your right hand? Yeah, absolutely. Because the Noble Triple Gem are not material things. They are truths. And the truth can only be associated by the mind. So whenever your mind associates the truth, now you are an Upasaka. When your mind does not associate the truth, you are not an upasaka. So if you want to qualify yourselves as upasakas and upasikas, then you must only seek refuge in the Dhamma. Only use the Dhamma in your defense. Use it as a shield when in these problems. That's, that's why you know. Last week I talked about you know. That, that's why I, I like to make these sessions practical and 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 bring up situations in life where you can apply them. Because oftentimes you will find yourselves in these situations. You know, a trapped mentality where where you feel trapped. Right? There are people are. It seems like everyone's against you. It seems like all the circumstances are against you, and nothing is helping you get to where you want to go. In those moments, ladies and gentlemen, you need to come to your senses and realize that the problem is you want to go somewhere. Not that someone's not letting you get there. Because if you feel that your challenge now is that someone's, someone's stopping you, someone's impeding you, someone's hindering your journey to get to somewhere, then your task will be from there on trying to change that person. Hmm? This is what people don't accept and therefore they make life miserable for themselves. Why is married life so difficult? Those who have been there, those who have done that, right? Those who are in a relationship will know this. Marriage life is difficult because you try to change the other person and they try to change you. That's why. If you're always happy to change yourself, then it's not just married life. Any life is easy. Do you think if we... If we if Excuse me, if we forced an arahant to get married, by married I mean, you know, live with somebody. Right? If we forced an arahant to get married, do you think he'll suffer? No. So it's not marriage life. It's not the wife you have to divorce. It's your attachment that you have to divorce. Keep the wife. She's all right. Because the wife does not bring suffering. The husband doesn't bring suffering. But if you don't accept that it is your flaw, if you don't accept that it is your opinion 
that you, you're holding on to that's causing you to suffer, then you are not an upasaka. So how does one lead a happily married life? By first becoming an upasaka. That's how. So if you, know, if you ever wish to find someone suitable for your children, and you want to put up a, what do you call them? On the paper? Advertisement? There's a name for it. Proposals, yes. These words, they don't come to me now, so I have to, <laughs> I have to, I have to dig deep to, to find these words, to surface them. Now, if you're looking for a proposal, you know, put it in the paper, looking for an upasaka for my young daughter. Because if you get married to an upasaka, if you live your life with an upasaka, you will not have to suffer. At least, well, I don't know about you, but they won't have to suffer. <laughs> your upasakanas is only going to be an answer to your problem, really. Mm-hmm. It's not going to always you know, help the other person. Your upasakanas is your, your defense. Yeah? That is the armory that you have to put on yourself. See, this is why you know, Guru Hamra is always going on about help your children, guide your children in the Dhamma. Make them see the light before they make, they, they make life-changing decisions. Before they make choices about who I'm going to spend the rest of my lives with, ensure that they have the Dhamma. Because if you don't give them that, after the knot is tied, it's going to be too late. Because then they're going to be far too busy to concentrate and focus and dedicate a part of their lives into becoming an Upasaka. In fact, that is the first thing anyone should be doing in, with their lives. Becoming an Upasaka. Because life is a series of challenges. Life is a series of problems that you have to solve. If you take out all the problems in your life, what are you left with? Hmm? What are you left with? Nothing. What is life then? Problems. All the problems that you have to solve. Day after day after day. Right? Right from the moment you wake up. Which side of the gate do I get out, bed do I get out of? That is also a problem you have to solve. Right? Then what's for breakfast? See, another problem you have to solve. How do I get to work today? That's another problem you have to solve. And then you're on the road and then you're stuck in traffic. Another problem you have to solve. Oh, by the way, you forgot. Pack lunch. <laughs> Go back. <laughs> Go back and pack lunch for the spouse, for the husband, for the wife, for the children. Right? Another problem you have to solve. How are they going to get to work? How are they going to get to school? Problems you have to solve. And then as you're having your shower, the hot water runs out. Hmm? No? Problem you have to solve. And then you go and find out why the hot water is not working. You haven't paid the bills. Problem you have to solve. Because you said the standing order, you said the direct debit, but they've not made the payment. There was not enough money in your bank account. Now that's another problem you have to solve. What, if li- what is life is not, if not a series of problems you have to solve? One after the other, after the other, after the other. It's just a series of problems you have to solve. So when you find yourself in these problems, right? if you suffer... I tell you, folks, that is your problem. That is your problem, not the other problems. That is because you have not yet become an upasaka. Who is an upasaka? Whenever faced with a problem, they seek refuge in the noble triple gem. That is an upasaka. When you seek refuge in the noble triple gem, you don't suffer. Mentally, you don't suffer. You don't suffer at all. An arahant is the best upasaka. Is the ideal upasaka. 
Anahat. Because they are completely submerged in the Noble Triple Gem. They know nothing other than the Noble Triple Gem. They also have problems. But they don't suffer at all. And Narahant has a problem, right? He's, he has to go on arms round. And, you know, apparently the, there's a roadblock. People are not allowed that way. Or maybe, you know, the king is coming on a tour. And so therefore they've blocked the roads. Right? Now they have to choose another path, the path that they've never been on before. That's a, that's a problem. And it is said that there are demons on that part of the road. Now that's a problem. They have to solve it. But they don't suffer mentally. Why? They're the best two passakas. They don't seek answers outside the Noble Triple Gem. I mean for mental problems. Physically, you need to make use of whatever is available around you. But mentally, not so. So, I urge you, become an Upasaka. And I know most of you have <clears throat> already started to adapt or adopt that mentality. I need you to do more of it. Do as much of it as you possibly can. That is why Guru Hamdra always says, right, if you have understood the Dhamma, you will no longer be there, you will be here. Of course, I understand, you know, it always comes with a caveat. Yes, you have duties and responsibilities and obligations. I say that with a smile on my face. So, I know that, yes. Because you have your duties, your responsibilities and your obligations, right? If that is all that is stopping you, fair enough. But if it is because you can't live without ice cream, and the thought of having to live without ice cream really gets on your nerves, really makes you feel that, mm -mm, no, not yet, I'm not ready yet. In those moments, you are not an opasaka. If you don't feel you're prepared because you can't go without watching TV, I know this sounds like I'm insulting you. If the reason you can't let go of the life you have become accustomed to is because you can't, you know, you can't imagine a life where there is no internet, where there is no, uh, no mobile phone, there are no games, no music, no TV, no eating out, hmm? no trips, no friends. There are friends, but, you know, your friends, the friends that are yours right now, you need them, your best friend. Sometimes you'll say, if my best friend goes, I'll go, otherwise I can't. In those moments, you're not in Upasaka. That is the only reason. Attachment is only causing you suffering. Free yourself from attachment and you're free from suffering. So, you will find yourself in these moments where your opinions clash with others. Yeah, that's a fact of life. And I think it is good that it happens from time to time. Because what if you're wrong? Hmm? What if you're wrong? So you must not ever hope for a world in which everyone just blindly agrees with you. It's fine if you are the Buddha, but not otherwise. Because if you are the Buddha, you're always right. But if not, then you could always be wrong. So to ex expect, beg your pardon, to expect a world in which everyone agrees with you without challenge 
you know, you're just asking for trouble. Because what if the choice you have made, the decision you have made is wrong? So welcome that, embrace that. But this is not, this is just management, this is just management speak. This is not the Noble Triple Gem speaking. This is not Noble Triple Gem speak, this is management speak. Except because you look at the positive side of it. Right? Take the, the, the positive approach. But really what you should be doing is, be okay with anything. Always look at a situation as a series of causes and effects. Now you need to hone this practice. You, you know, just because you listen to a sermon on one day doesn't mean that from then on you can do it. It comes with practice. Right? Like learning to ride a bike came with practice. Learning to tie your shoelaces came with practice. Right? Learning to cook came with practice. Learning to walk came with practice. Everything comes with practice. If you fail right now in some moments, if you're not as successful as you'd like to be, if you don't always come out victorious, the only reason for that is, well, it could be one of two reasons. One, you haven't understood yet. Or two, if you've understood, you haven't practiced enough. So for both these things, you just have to, one, be here, and two, apply the principles that we take from here in as many situations as you possibly can. That is why I always ask you at the end of one of these talks, you know, over the course of the next week, put this into practice. Whenever you find yourself in a situation and you feel trapped, you feel victimized, take a moment, take a deep breath. And have that accountability partner remind you, oh, whoa, 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 why are you going south? Hold on, why, 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 why you got a long face on? Huh? Did we agree? Did you, did you not ask me to remind you? When you, when you start, when you start, you know, going off track. So like, get back, get yourself back on track. Noble triple gem. Remember, that's what you need to do. So get them to guide you back on track. And then practice. In that moment, if you practice, folks, you know, that is another step you've taken on this journey. You're one step further ahead than you were. There's a lovely analogy I often like to use because it really gets the point across. How does one become, in a game of cricket, how does one become the man of the match? Let's take a batsman. A batsman has become man of the match. Okay? How does he become the man of the match? You're all familiar with this example, so I bring that. Because he has been so very successful in using his bat right, to one, save his wicket and two, score as many runs for his team as he possibly can. Yes? In every moment where he's managed to convince the committee right, or the, 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 uh, the awarding com committee to, to nominate him as the man of the match, there was always a blessing in disguise. If not for the bowler, he would never have become the man of the match. Because it is always the balls that are thrown at you to knock you out that is the blessing for you to become the man of the match. Because what do you strike out there into the field for a four or a six? The ball that is thrown to knock you out. Just imagine if you were playing a game of cricket, right? You know, like when you play with your kids, right? We do at Noble Hearts. I don't. <laughs> Before we jump to any conclusions. I don't. Right? Well, let's say, let's say if we did, right? So we ask one of the children to hold a bat. And we go to the other side and say, Puta, are you ready? Ready? Here's the ball. Here's the ball. Ready? Ah. Why do we do it that way? Remember when you were a kid, right? Or you were playing with your kids? The intention is what? To give them a chance 
to, 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 show, to show off, right? You don't want to, to, to take a wicket. You don't want to get them out. You want them to play. You want them to be able to feel that they've managed to you know, hit a good strike. You want them to feel that way because you know, otherwise they'll feel really, you know, really, really disappointed and they'll start crying if you hit the wicket. And all. You don't want all that fuss. You just want them to enjoy themselves because you're just playing with them. This is not a real game. In a real game, you don't do that way. Yeah? So when, when you're playing a game like that, do you award them man of the match? Do you? No, if you've played cricket at school, for instance, right, or maybe for the provincial council or wherever, you don't get nominated man of the match for playing a ball that is thrown at you to help you to play a four or a six. Only a ball that is thrown at you to, to knock you out counts, yeah. yeah. Only those balls are, will, would count towards those that help you go on to become a man of the match. So then to become successful, what must you expect? To play a six, to play a four, what must you expect? And to become man of the match, what must you expect? Balls that are thrown at you to knock you out. That's what you should expect. Because in adversity, and in, your, in the way you face adversity, in those challenges, that is what helps you grow. That is what helps you come out stronger and more successful. So that is why I say, don't ever leave lay life. Ah, now you'll take that down. Ah, Swami Nath is giving us reasons. Huh? Don't ever leave lay life because, because your reason for leaving lay life, if your reason for leaving lay life is, it's just so very difficult. No one agrees with me. No one likes me. No one, no one listens to me. So I want to leave my lay life. Because it seems like at the monastery, Everyone is just so nice. Everyone just always agrees with everything. It's not so. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not so. So much so that to test you sometimes, right, if you come planned, prepared with some, some agenda, some program, right, you come to your teacher, teachers are advised to completely tear it out and say start again. Just to give them a taste of their own defilements. We do that. Out of compassion. Not out of animosity. Out of compassion. Because, you know, what is more dangerous? The, the enemy st stood in front of you or the enemy in hiding? Which one's more dangerous? The enemy in hiding is far more dangerous because you don't know when you're going to be struck. You don't know when they might strike. So we, won't, we don't like for you to have enemies in hiding. We try to surface them. We try to bring them out of you and help you identify those enemies. So don't ever leave lay life because people don't agree with me. No one likes me. No one talks to me. No one hangs out with me. No one, no one, no one uh, you know, agrees with what I have to say. Everyone's always against me. That is not the right reason. Here's the reason. In those situations, you don't know how to conduct yourself. In those situations, you don't know how to maintain your cool. In those situations, you don't know how to, how to face them without, any, without a modicum of suffering. That is the reason to come here. That is the reason. So your outcome of, this, of, of coming here should not be, how do I change the outside world? But rather, how do I change myself?
my outlook on life determines the climate ahead. Whether it's going to be windy, whether it's going to be rainy, whether it's going to be sunny, it is all dependent on your outlook on life. That is why we discuss the Dhamma. That this is like the prelude to a book. This part. Right before you start reading a book, it is always good advice to read the prelude. Right? Or the foreword. It tells you why you should read the book. Now, when you read that, you understand what the book was written for. What was the author's intention of writing the book? Why this book? Why not another book? And then, if you've read that, then you, as you start reading the book, you realize, ah, so that is why these chapters are lined up in this order. That is why these examples are used, and so on. Because he has a very specific intention of, of, of authoring that book. So this is why we have to discuss, learn, understand and comprehend the truths that we'll be sharing with you for the rest of this talk. So that in situations in life, folks, you always take the right approach. Right? Don't forsake the Buddha, ever. Don't forsake the Dhamma. Don't forsake the Sangha. Always have them as your refuge. If you ever forsake them, you will always come out defeated. No questions asked. Or you'll always come out defeated. That is Pamado Machuno Pada. Apamado Amatapada. Pamado Machuno Pada. Appamada Amatapadang is whenever you seek refuge in the Noble Triple Gem, you will be coronated with the elixir of the Dhamma. Just imagine that. The coronation with the elixir of Dhamma. You will always come out victorious. You'll always be happy. You'll always be free. But in any moment you forsake the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha, in any moment you seek answers outside of the Noble Triple Gem, where you're expecting the outside world to change, you're expecting someone else or something else to change, you're expecting the situation to change, and not your response to it, you will always come out defeated. Even if you feel that momentarily you have won something, right? even if you feel momentarily, that is the Yashad, in the moment you feel that you've come out victorious, you feel that you've, you've got it your way, right? you're only setting yourself up to fail royally in the future. This moment's failure or this moment's victory is only setting yourself up for a humongous failure in the future. So don't be happy with you know, these minor victories. Don't give yourselves a pat on the back and say, oh, I got it, I got it the situation I want. I, I, I got it out, I got out of it the way I wanted. Don't think you won. It is a defeat in disguise. It's a defeat in disguise. Right, so that is the purpose, and here's the substance. Okay? Let's start to have some, let's talk about some of the things that, that's going to help you to get there. In fact, if you think about it, what we've been talking about is Buddha. In other words, Nibbana. Now we're going to start talking about the Dhamma. I can't do Sangha for you. 
Can I? I can't do that for you. What we've been talking about so far is Nibbana. In other words, Buddha. The state that I want you to get to. That state of mind I want you to get to, that is Buddha. What we're going to be talking about now is the Dhamma. How to get there. The teaching, the principles, the philosophy that you need to get there. Once you're armed with that and you know where to go, if you know where you need to get, and if I've shown you the way, then whose job is it next? Yes. I can't do Sangha for you. You can't delegate Sangha. That is yours and yours alone. Only you can do that. I can encourage you. Hmm? I can encourage you. I can twist an arm or a leg or give a kick up your backside. I can do that. Especially if you bring yourselves closer to us. That is what you've been doing as Anagarikas and Anagarikas and monks and Sila Shravakas and Sravikas and Uesis and so on. Right? That, that is you coming closer and closer and closer to your teacher and saying, please, please, please give me a kick up my back. <laughs> that is the permission that you give your teacher. The closer you get. I always, you know, when, when I talk to my students, I tell them, think of, me, think of the teacher. I use myself in that situation, example, but I say, think of your teacher as a mirror. Okay? And so it's a, it's a lovely analogy, actually, if I might say so myself. <laughs> think, of my, think of your teacher as a mirror. When you do your makeup, what do you do? Hmm? Dents? Uh, ladies, when you do your makeup, what do you do? You go up to your dressing table, right? Perhaps you sometimes may pull up a stool your, by your dressing table, and you bring your face close to the mirror, don't you? As close as possible to the mirror, because you want to see all the imperfections. Right? The, the I don't know, what do you call them? What do you have on your face? Those imperfections, what are they called? Hmm? Blemishes, yes, blemishes. Uh, pimples, I don't know why they're called pimples, they should really be called pauples. You can't do ping and get those things. So the pimples, the blackheads, any more? Cracks, crevices, <laughs> all sorts. So you have all these things on your face, right? And now you want to do, a, do your makeup, right? So you want to do it up. So to do that, you bring your face as close to the mirror as possible. In fact, if you can't see it clearly enough, you bring it closer, as close as you possibly can. In fact, sometimes some of you will have like a handheld mirror, right? and you bring it close and do your makeup. After you've done your makeup, now you want to see what you look like. Then what do you do? You stand up and you walk back. Yeah, you walk back and then you... you, 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 you you give yourself some distance between yourself and the mirror, and then you look at yourself to see how you appear to others. Isn't that what you do? That's why you walk back from them, because no one's going to come and look at you, you know, like up close. People normally, unless they're creepy, right? people, people normally keep some distance from you as they observe you. Yeah? But when you want to do yourself up, when you want to do your makeup, when you want to find all those blemishes, now you have to bring yourself close to the mirror. See, this is the teacher. Your teacher, you associating your teacher 
you should bring yourself as close to the mirror as you possibly can because the closer you get, the mirror does a better job of showing you what your blemishes are. And where you need the makeup, where you need the brush, where you need the touch-ups, the closer you get, the easier it is to spot. See, the mirror doesn't do anything. It just sits there. The mirror never comes close to you, does it? Hmm? When I say when you wake up in the morning, does the mirror come to you and go, hey, it's time. <laughs> no, you got to do that. So you decide when to go in front of the mirror. So the mirror just stays stationary. Absolutely, sir. Yeah. So you're, you're looking at your own reflection, right? So you, you, look at, you, look at the, you look in the mirror and you look at yourself. But the mirror doesn't show you anything other than yourself. You're looking at yourself, but in the mirror. So the mirror is the teacher. The mirror, the teacher tells you about whom? About yourself. But to tell you about yourself, you have to come as close as you possibly can to your teacher. In other words, reveal yourself. Don't close yourself up. The more you close yourself up, the more you cover yourself up, the more you distance yourself from your teacher, you can't see your own blemishes. That is what you do when you have done your makeup and then you walk back to see how others might see you. Of course, when in the face of others, when you're with others, cover up all your blemishes. Don't let them see all your weaknesses and your faults and your, and your, and your flaws. That is not, you know, it is not a public display. <laughs> your flaws and your, and your weaknesses, your shortcomings should not be a public display. That should only be a conversation, a private conversation, a personal conversation with your teacher, whoever that teacher might be. Now at our monastery we have several lines of teachers, layers after layers after layers, all the way up to Guru Anguru. So if one teacher cannot catch you when you fall, the next one will. If they can't catch you, the next one will. But if they can't catch you, the next one will. Right? Just imagine, the Anagarika Mahathya who comes to the monastery today, how many teachers they have, all the way up to Guru Anguru. Right? It's, it's barely, it's virtually impossible to fall. Because if they fall, their teacher will catch you. If the teacher falls, the teacher will, their teacher will catch you. If their teacher falls, the next teacher will catch All the way up to the top. So in that way, we are much more stronger, or much more strong than we used to be. We have so many people out there to catch if you fall. So associate your teacher, whoever that teacher might be. Now I, I, I bring this example in the context of the Dhamma, right? In whatever facet of life, associate your teacher like you would look yourself in the mirror. Get yourself as close as, possible, as you possibly can. It is not the mirror that comes up to you. You must remember that. The mirror doesn't walk up to you. It is not right for the mirror to walk up to you because the mirror doesn't only show you your reflection. If somebody else comes in front of them, now it's time to show their reflection. See, there may be four people at home, but there's only one mirror. So the mirror has to do that job for all four of you. So the mirror can't be coming with you wherever you go. Yeah? You've got to go to the mirror when you feel it's time. So this is a, a bit of advice I, I give to my, my students. If you want to know what's wrong with you, come and meet your teacher. Don't expect the teacher to come after you. And open yourself up. Don't cover yourself up. 
Time to cover up is after you've done your business with your teacher and then you walk out. Now you're in the face of public. You're in the public face. Then, you know, cover yourselves up. Right. I was having a discussion with someone recently and uh, an interesting point came up and I thought I'd share it with you all. You know, this is not like a brown, uh, groundbreaking truth or anything like that, but I think it will help you to be convinced of a key concept that we've talked about in the past. And I'm talking about time, or the perception of time. We all perceive time. By that I mean, you feel that things that happened yesterday were actually things that happened yesterday. In fact, you feel that you did them yesterday. But yesterday, it was the now. Yeah? In this moment, memories of yesterday come to you now. But you feel that they happened yesterday. Does that make sense? Yeah, that is how we perceive the past. So what you perceive is not yesterday. What you perceive is now, but as yesterday. Do you see the difference? To perceive yesterday is impossible. Yeah, you've got, to, you've got to time travel. You've got to travel back in time to perceive yesterday. But what, when we talk about yesterday, what, what really happens is we perceive now. We perceive now, we, because that is all there is, this moment. We perceive now, but we perceive it as yesterday. And this perception is, a, is purely a perception. It is a perception of jati. Jati is the, is the reason that you perceive this way. Have you ever experienced a deja vu? Do you know what that is? Some of you may, others might not. So I'll explain to you what a deja vu is. It is a moment where you feel you're in, you're in a situation, whatever. Like it could be right now. We are in a situation. You're, you're there, Swami Nas is here, he's doing a sermon. You're sat next to that gentleman or that lady on that chair right under this light. Right? A series of, this is a circumstance, set of circumstances. You feel it's happened to you before. You feel like you've been in that exact situation sometime in the past. You don't know when though. You can't piece it on the timeline. Was it yesterday? Was it the day before? Was it last week? That you don't know. But you feel like it's happened to you at some point in the past. Have you ever experienced this? Yeah? No. I, I think it's, it's a very common phenomenon. Most people in the world, they've experienced it at some point in their lives. Anyone who hasn't, just give me a quick raise of hands if you've never experienced a deja vu. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's one person in the room who hasn't experienced a deja vu. <clears throat> now we wish and pray that you do so. <laughs> so you all know what I'm talking about then, right? Except one. You all know what I'm talking about, so you know what a deja vu is. Now, just have a think about the phenomenon of, a, phenomenon of a deja vu, how might it be possible that a deja vu can, can, can bring you that sensation of 
this event having happened in the past. Because let's talk about the facts. The facts are, this event has never happened before. I mean, that is the, the definition of a deja vu, right? If it actually has happened before, then you talk, we, we call it a memory. But we know that we know, you, if you've, you, as you've experienced a deja vu, you know what the feeling is like. It's a very uncomfortable feeling, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a queer feeling. It's quite queer when it happens. Right? You feel like, this is not possible. I know it's not possible. Right? I, I, this, there's no way this could have happened before because this is the first time I've met this guy. It's not possible for this to have happened before, but I feel like it's happened before. And that is what unset is very unsettling for you. When something that is virtually impossible has happened. Now it brings us to the question, how does a deja vu happen? And then you'll find some answers. It will bring to light the fact that this time concept is a perception. And I'm going to try to explain to you how that is. What's happening now is only happening now. Right? So if you take this situation for instance, your mind is only perceiving the sights that come through your eyes right now. Okay? If you take a single chitta in this moment, right? we just, let's focus on the sight object. Right now, if you're all looking at me, you see this, this sight, you see this image. That is happening right now. This has not happened before. I promise you, if this has not happened before. In fact, if you asked everyone else in the room, and if, say, one of you are having a deja vu right now, if we ask everyone else in the room, including the Bhante who's doing the sermon, right, we can all vouch for the fact that this has never happened before. This is the first time this has ever happened. But you feel that it has happened before. So then we have to accept and admit, yes, this is the first time it's happening, it has not happened before. But why do I feel then that it has happened before? Because these are two processes. These processes, they run in parallel, but they are two processes. The process of perceiving what is happening now is one process. The, the process of putting it on the timeline is another process. I say that again, let's draw it on the board. You have the eye and the sight object. And together you have the consciousness. The eye consciousness. Okay. And then this gives rise to Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, when it comes into contact with the mind. And so this is the this is the the process of perceiving the present moment. Okay? This process can only perceive present moments. It cannot perceive past moments. But what about you have when you have memories then? A memory is still a fragment of the past that is perceived when? Now, absolutely. Okay? What about when you think of the future? It's still perceived now. Okay? To perceive anything other than the now, you'll have to time travel, either into the past or the future. Right? That, as far as I'm concerned, is a lot of nonsense. So, you have the present moment, that is what is being perceived right now. Now, there's, this is always now. So, when you're having a deja vu moment, 
There's another process that is running alongside this that places this perception, because this is the output of this process, this places this on a timeline. So the timeline then must be conjured up. Meaning your sense of time, your perception of time has to be first created. How does that happen? You have ignorance and attachment and then it gives rise to, well, you have Abhisankara, Bhava and Jati. When Jati happens, this event is a separate event because Jati Think of jati. Whenever you think of jati, ladies and gentlemen, think of, as, think of it as separation. Whenever you think of jati, think of it as separation. Because I think the word jati back then was used to mean that. In the Buddha's time, the Buddha's era, the Buddha's time rather. Like we use jati today, instead of the, the definition of birth that we have, uh, you know, that, in that, uh, instead of that connotation, that when we say like pen jati and dusta jati and Singhala Jati and Tamil Jati and so on. We talk about separation, right? We talk about separate entities. I believe that in the time when the Buddha preached the Dhamma, now I can't speak on behalf of the Buddha, certainly, but I, I feel that in this context, he is referring to this separation. How we perceive things as separate entities. So this sense of separation, this perception of separation happens when ignorance and attachment start working on the mind. And then when that happens, this event, the perception of a real event, so this might be, for instance, now as we are taking this situation as an example, Swami Nansi there, he is doing a sermon. He's doing a sermon. So you are seeing this. This is a sight object. This is happening in the present moment. But when you separate this, this event, from everything else. When you separate this event, this event must now be placed on something that confirms that it is a separate event. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago when I asked you, how do you perceive this as two separate objects? The same object? Remember we talked about this? Okay, I'll help rejig your memory. It is by putting this on the timeline. When you put an object on the timeline, then you can compare it with itself. Remember? Because now you have the pen that was yesterday, the pen today, and the pen tomorrow. And now you can compare the same object with itself. If you, if you couldn't do that, you'd, have to you'd always have to take another object to compare it with. But when you create time, you can now compare an object with itself. And when you compare an object with itself, now you can say whether it was better than yesterday, worse than yesterday, same as yesterday. See, because out of, without comparison, you can't have a sensation of pleasure. For pleasure to take place, the phenomenon of pleasure always requires comparison. It's only when you have two things you can compare with each other, and then you can say one is better than the other, or one is worse than the other. And that brings you pleasure. Okay? Because whenever you like something, then you can always compare it with something else and say that is, that is like what I thought it was and so therefore I like it and so on. Now when jati happens in the mind, this event is separated from everything. 
and the perception of time begins to happen in the mind. So therefore, this has to be placed on the timeline. See, when you, now, for, right now you all feel self, don't you? Do you really? Still? Hmm? So you all, sense, you all sense a self. When you sense a self, things that have been perceived in your mind, you can't help think that it happened at a given time. You can't help think that. It just comes very naturally. You don't have to force yourself to think it. It, it comes to you. For example, if I asked you, breakfast. If I say the, when I say the word breakfast, you know that it was something you had in the morning. Right? If you've had a breakfast this morning, your mind goes back in time. Actually, your mind doesn't go back in time. What happens is, memories of breakfast come into your mind now, and then you imagine a timeline. You imagine a timeline and you place having breakfast, this memory that's come into the mind, manadam, you place that object on the perceived timeline. So that you can say, it was I who was there then and it is I who's here now. Because if not for the timeline, you'd be lost. That is why the mind creates a timeline. You'd be lost. Just think about, you know, if you exist, okay, if you exist, if you exist, What is a requirement of existence? An absolute requirement of existence is to tell, is to say how long you've existed. It's like when you wait for the bus. Like when you're at the bus stand waiting for the bus, you say, I've been waiting for the bus for so long. I've been waiting for the last hour. Meaning, you, it was you who was there waiting for an event to happen. Yeah? So, when the event that is happening is you. Meaning, your perception of you is the event that is happening. You need to be able to say how long it's been happening. Therefore, you have to put it, you have to um, you have to superimpose it on a timeline. Otherwise, how are you going to say this happening, what happening? Not this. Not the physical, existence, yes. This happening of existence, if something exists, it exists for a period of time. Otherwise you can't talk about existence, right? I know existence itself is a flawed concept. But if you, work, if you start working with flawed concepts, you have to create an ecosystem of flawed concepts for it to, for it to hang. You know, it's like, I don't know whether it's safe to use that example. Okay, I'm not going to use the... Let's say there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a festival. Okay? Um, it's called... A, it's, called a, it's, called a, it's called a jamboree. It's called a jamboree. There's actually a word called jamboree, but I'm using a different, in a different meaning here. Let's say for jamboree, what people have to do is they have to put up a tree, light it up, Okay, and then uh, give presents to each other, right? And 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 that is how you celebrate jamboree. It's a, it's a festival. Okay, so when you when you start talking about a festival, a jamboree, you have to talk about you have to talk about how how long 
that you have to wait for that festival. You have to talk about how long it's going to last. Okay? So, so you, you, because otherwise, how can you look forward to it? When you talk about existence, you have to put yourself on a timeline. The, the, the analogy I'm trying to make here is this. And forgive me, because I've not said this before, so I'm trying to still find the words and the, and the metaphors to try and get the concept out to you. This jamboree, it's a made-up event. It's a made-up concept. This jamboree is a festival. It's a made-up concept. Okay? Let's say this jamboree celebrates celebrates uh, the, the coronation, the coronation of, um, of, a, of, a, of a prince who apparently lived a thousand years ago, but this is all a made-up story. Let's just say there was a prince who lived a thousand years ago, and you know people loved this prince, right? He was a people. He was a person of of the people, right? And so therefore we celebrate his coronation every year. They do this. It's been how many years now? A thousand years since his coronation. Now this is a made-up event. Let's say historians somehow got that story into the books, right, into some some book, and now we people just carry on celebrating it. Maybe it came out in a fairy tale initially, but then someone decided that it is to go into history books and now it has come to us as a festival that is celebrated an actual celebration of a coronation so you see in this event you will have a tree you might have a throne you might have a crown right you might have all the uh, the the lights hung up you'll have the decorations right you'll have the tapestry you'll have uh, the canopies you'll have all these things these are all made up so that you can fully immerse yourself in this, in this made-up story, in this fantasy. You know, when you, when, you, when you create a fairy tale, you have to think about all of the parts of it so that it feels real. So because this jamboree is a celebration of a coronation that happened a thousand years ago but didn't actually, it actually didn't happen. It was only in a fairy tale. Someone decided to put it into a history book. And today, people think that it was an actual event that happened a thousand years ago. And so people celebrate. Now, to make people feel that it was an actual event, and for people to internalize it, to feel it, to enjoy it, to entertain themselves, they have to think about everything and all the details that went into it. They have to make elaborate decorations so that people will buy the story. Okay? Now, in the same way, so that's an analogy. In the same way, when the mind conjures up an imaginary, <clears throat> an imaginary entity, for the mind to feel that this entity is an actual entity, it has to create the background for it, it has to create the environment for it, it has to create the whole, the whole nine yards, it has to create the whole picture. The stage has to be set out. Why? Because this is a make-believe event. It's a make-believe event. So for this make-believe event, for the mind to perceive it as a true event, all of the aspects of it must seem true. Now, here's the point I'm trying to get to. When the mind begins to identify a separate identity, that is the you that you experience, the self that you experience, that you perceive, for it to be sensed as an actual entity, you have to create the background for it. 
You have to create the environment for it. And that environment is created when the concept of time is perceived. Existence is fake. But the mind doesn't feel that it is fake. The mind feels that it is real. But for the mind to feel it's real, you can't just exist. You have to exist on time. So therefore, time, the perception of time, must happen for you to experience to, for you to feel, for you to perceive this self as being a real, the real deal. If time never happened, if you never perceived time, then existence wouldn't survive either. These two things have to happen together. So if you exist, you have to exist on the time, on the time axis. Make sense? Like the jamboree. If you're going to create a jamboree, if you're going to put up the tree, if you're going to put up the, the, the crown, and you're going to talk to people about the celebration of a coronation a thousand years ago, you have to go the whole way and do the whole thing, the full works. All the bells and whistles. You need all of it. Otherwise, people are not going to fall for it. Your mind is not going to fall for existence if time wasn't, invented, it wasn't created and perceived in your mind. So therefore, time is a necessary requirement of the mind for it to be okay with the concept or the perception of existence. Now let's come back here. That was a long story. I should have just said, just believe me. <laughs> when jati happens, you feel you are an identity. But what's really happening is just this, the present moment. What is happening is you are seeing Swami Nansen, Right? That's just an event that has never happened before. Now jati is happening in the mind because of ignorance. Right? On a, on a base of attachment, on a base of ignorance, Jati is now happening. And the moment Jati happens, this is identified as a separate event. And you are identified as the person who is experiencing this event. Okay? When you are identified as the person who is experiencing this event, now you have, are experiencing it when? Now. You are experiencing it now. Now here's what happens when deja vu's happen. There's a system error. What you should perceive as now, you perceive as a previous event. That's a system error. It's like a blue screen that you get on a computer or an exception that comes up. Unhandled exception. It throws up an error. This might... What this argument proves to us, ladies and gentlemen, is, is that these two events are entirely unrelated. These two events, these two processes are disconnected. In fact, that is why you can stop one and the other can continue. Because they are unrelated. This is only the platform. This is the stage. This is the act. So you can get rid of this stage. Now, I'm doing the sermon on this platform. Can't I do the sermon on the ground, on the floor? Of course I can, but I'm, I have chosen to do it here. right? Because when I do it here, it gives you the perception that the, the, the person who's delivering the talk is, say, you know, forgive me for using for the need of a better word, superior, so that you are more receptive to the talk. Right? If any of you were doing the talk, then you'd be sat here. There is... That's just the way that we do a talk, right? So in the same way, this is the platform. On this platform, this act happens. Now, when the mind, out of ignorance still, is working 
to plan. It's when things are going to plan, this always happens as now. You only perceive present moments as now. Okay? Only perceive present moments as now. If this were from memory, now this is of course you're seeing Swami Nancy. What if you remembered home? Now I say the word home. Perhaps this is, you know, your home looks like this. Right? <clears throat> that is home. When I say the word home, you know clearly, well and truly, that home is not here. You, because you can't see home right now. Your five sense organs are not going to bring you an image of home right now. So when I say home, that comes from where? Comes from memory. Yes, as a, as a dhamma, right? It comes from memory. When it comes from memory, it's okay when Jati tells you, if this is now, this is the past, this is the future. Yeah? It's okay when, when, when something comes from memory. If this comes from memory, so this comes from the eye, and this comes from memory. This one, sorry. This one comes from memory. Okay, so this comes through the eye, and this comes through memory. When something comes through memory, and, and drops on the, uh, on the mind, and then it gets... Uh, interpreted as, as Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, you are okay with Jati telling you that is an event from the past. You're okay with that. Then we say the system is working optimally. But what is a deja vu moment? A deja vu moment is, yeah, absolutely, this is happening now. But actually there is, there is nothing called now the way you perceive it. This moment, when it drops on the mind, Rupa, Dana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, you, 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 you analyze it and you perceive it. And now, when Jati happens, what should really be happening is, it should, it should land down here somewhere. But this goes into system error, this process. And what happens is, the past is perceived. These two processes, although they run parallelly, they are independent of each other. It's like one machine spitting out a conception of time and another machine spitting out a perception of an event. These two things come out together. Okay? Every moment, a now object is spit out from Jati. It's always a now. 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 Yeah, so when you're seeing me, you, always, you, you all feel what? This is happening now, right? You feel this is happening now because in the Jati process, a now instance is always being spawned out and it's, it's being spit out. So that's why when this happens, one of this happens. So one of this and one of this, together you feel this is happening now. Yeah? So you're seeing me? Now. You're hearing me? Now. You're seeing the lights? Now. You're feeling the, perhaps the cool from the aircon? Now. You're feeling all this? Now. You're feeling the, the, the touch of your chair? Now. This now is thrown out by the jati process and this is thrown out by the consciousness process. But what happens when a deja vu happens? System error. Instead of throwing out a now, it throws out a past. It throws out a conception or a perception of the past. That doesn't look like now. It looks like this perhaps. So this is, this is a dot. This is something like a triangle. So this Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyana if this was a circle, okay, and say this is a square, the future we represent with a square, 
Now we represent with a dot, and uh, the past we represent with a triangle. If the Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyana, I, I draw with a, no, that's a dot, let's draw a circle. Draw a circle. Here's what always happens in your mind. Did you catch that? This comes from the perception process, normal perception process, and this comes from the jati process. An instance of now combines with an instance of perception. And so therefore, the perceiving now. Right? One of these with one of these. It's like when they make these pens in the factory, right? They'll be making one of these and one of these. So somewhere on the production line, these two will be fit together and they'll go into a box. That'll end up in the stationary uh, aisle, for instance. Okay? So one of these is always produced with one of these. That is what Jati does. And this is what the perception process does. Now imagine, when you have a deja vu moment, what's happening is, instead of producing one of these, there's a system error. And therefore, what you get is not one of these. What do you get? You get a triangle. When is this happening? It is actually happening now. But what is the Jati process throwing out? A perception of the past. It is a perception of the past. Not the event in the past. Because there is no such thing called an event in the past. All there is is a perception of the past. So there's a perception of the present and there's a perception of the future. Can you think of this time in, without the events? Just for a moment, you know, try and imagine what I'm trying to express to you here. Ignore the events and just think about time. Ignore the events. Okay? So if you just imagine time, think of the past without thinking about the events. I know it's, virtually, it's impossible to do this, right? But I just want to do, just try and, try and do what I'm asking you to do, if, if at all possible. Right? Instead of thinking about the events, just think about the concept of the past. The past as a concept. And the future as a concept. The present as a concept. Ignore the events. Okay? What your mind does is these events happen in the present. Jati process spits out the concept of time. Either as, a, as the present, as the past, or the future. So what happens here in a, in a deja vu moment is instead of a now, it spews out the, a triangle which here represents the past. So when these two things combine, now you feel that this present moment happened in the past. Like, uh, what do you call premonitions. Yeah, so it's never happened to me, but perhaps it's possible. Like maybe, you know, when you plan for the future, like, and I would say, uh, actually I, I lie, I can't say it's never happened to me, we, all, we do it all the time. Right? When, when, for example, I say, right, this evening, this evening you're going to be doing something. You're going to, when, when you go home this evening, I tell you, right? when you go home this evening, please make sure, and I say something, okay? So now you're thinking about the evening, right? But I'm saying these words right now. And in fact, when I tell you, when you, this evening, as you get into your car, I'll tell you, okay? In this evening, as you get into your car. Now, the moment I say, as you get into your car, getting into your car comes to you in this moment. The image of getting into your car comes to you in this moment. And then, your mind produces a, a packet of future. It's not a packet of getting into the car in the future. It's a packet of future. It's a box. 
If you put things into that box, it feels like they happen in the future. Here's another box. If you put things into that box, it feels like they happen in the past. Here's another box. If you put things into that box, it feels like it's happening now. So these are three boxes. These are time boxes. So the mind, the jati process produces these time boxes. So when you plan for the future, of course you only plan for the future, you don't ever plan for the past, right? That's a, <laughs> you don't even need to say that. When you plan, when you plan for something to happen that is going to happen in the future, here's how that happens. So if I tell you in, at 9.30, we are going to stop this sermon, right? And at that point, I want you all to stand up and please leave this room in an orderly fashion. Oh, and please make sure you take your umbrellas with you. Now, as I say these things, don't those images come, to, come into your mind? That you, you, uh, even as I say it, you're thinking, yes, are we going to get up? We're going to walk out in a line. Swami Nas is going to worship the Buddha and he's going to walk out of the room. Our umbrellas are kept outside so we can pick them up. Now, of course, you know, you can't, you can't imagine something you've never seen before. So, of course, these things are coming from memory. All of this is coming from memory. But, of course, we know that memories are all past events. So, how come you can plan for the future then? If they're all past events, how do you perceive that they are events that are going to happen in the future? How that happens is, Jati is helping you do that. Because it creates these boxes and it labels them future. So, there's a box. Three boxes. The now box, the future box, and the past box. So it creates a box and sends it to you. At the moment the jati process spits out a box, the present moment, whatever happens in this moment, this is patijasampanna. Okay? Oh, this, happens, this happens when the causes are right, not on time. It's independent of the time. Not the time, it's independent of time. Right? It's independent of time. Things just happen when causes are right. And then each of these events are dropped into one of these boxes. So you can have this into this box, into that box, or into that box. So if the box that came out was a now box, you feel that this is happening now, as you feel it right now. See, I'm talking to you and you're you feel, you really perceive that this is happening now, right? You feel that this is happening now. But what about when you leave this room? Ah, immediately your mind creates a future box. And then I say, umbrella, lift, raise the umbrella. You can help the, walk the Swami Nuhansi, escort the Swami Nuhansi to the Dhamma Hall. Today is Dakineyo. See, all those images, they come from memory, but where are they put? Which box? Future box. What about last Dakineyo? Do you remember the last Dakineyo? What is your mind doing right now? It's creating past boxes. And into those boxes, it is dropping events that it's taking out of memory. But when you think about the past, and you feel that it's a past event, you don't call it a deja vu. Because now there's no clash of events, the, 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 the chronological order of events. It is a past event, and I feel it happened in the past, no problem. Then you don't feel that unsettling feeling of a deja vu. Or when you think about a future event, leaving this room in a few moments, and your mind creates a future box and puts that into the future box, you don't feel that, you know, there, there's no, it doesn't tally. You don't feel that, uh, you know, uh, that, 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 they do, that they don't agree. You don't feel that sense of uh, disconformity. You don't feel that, or unconformity rather. But when in the present moment, you create 
a, a passed box. That's why I call it a system error. When it creates a passed box and a present event drops into that, now you realize, hold on a second, this event cannot have happened in the past. There's no way this could have happened in the past. So how do I, why do I feel that it has happened in the past? Now you feel a bit uneasy about it. That is how a deja vu happens. So why am I talking about deja vus today? Is to convince you of one point alone. This time is a perception of the mind. The mind constantly, constantly? Thank you. The mind constantly tries to place existence on a timeline. Like the jamboree. If it's a make-believe event, you need everything to go with it that is make-believe. You can't just have the throne and the, and, the, uh, and the crown. You have to have the full works. Right? So existence cannot happen alone. Existence needs to be on the, time, on the timeline. So when the timeline is, is generated by the mind through the jati process, now the mind always spits out a box. A box so that present events can be put into it. Yeah, it's like parceling things up. Just imagine that. Like parceling things like, like on Amazon, right? You order something, there's, a, there's a, a production line where they put things into boxes, label them up, put the tape on it, and then you just ship them off. So before these events are shipped off, by the time it comes to vinyana, the perception process, the, 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 the moment of perception, where you feel the whole thing as, as one, by that point, ladies and gentlemen, the box has already arrived. Yeah, so by the time it becomes vinyana, you have the box ready here. And that box depends on what the jati process spits out. Now, I'm sure there must be a, a way in which the mind controls. The mind has some, some, you know, it has to have some kind of control as to whether this is going to be a past box, a future box, or a present box. Right? There has to be some control over that, because that is why you don't feel like all of a sudden you live in the past or you live in the future. Right? You always feel that you live in the present moment. But from time to time, this can go wrong. There's a system error. And a past box is created when in fact it should be a what box? And now a present box. But what they get out is a past box. When the past box comes, this gets dropped into it and you feel like this happened in the past. But in the very next moment, after that chitta, in the very next moment, now you have a present box. And into that box, you drop the Dhamma that was the memory of the past event. Which event? The event in which you experience the Deja Vu. So that Deja Vu moment gets dropped into this present box. And then you go, whoa, 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 hold on a second. How did I feel a moment ago that I, this happened in the past? That can't be, right? It can't be, right? How did that happen? Now you begin to wonder, how, that, how, how did that happen? So now deja vu is, 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 you know, this is a phenomenon that is still being studied by psychology and scientists are still trying to work out how deja vu's happen. Well, this is how deja vu's happen. For that, you need to understand how the chitta works. It's not enough just to understand how the mind works. We've got to understand that time is a production, is a, is a fantasy, is an illusion of the jati process. And once you do that, now you can nice and clearly explain how you have these deja vu moments. It's very simple. So the next time you catch a deja vu, you catch yourself having a deja vu, just remember this story. It's just a system error. <laughs> Your mind just needs, needs a bit of oiling or something. <laughs> Anyhow, you know, the long and short of all this is, I just want to get the point across to you that this is one process and this is another process. These two can operate 
independently of each other. That is why you can stop this and this can continue. Last words for today. Can, can this be stopped and this continue? Can it? No. I say this because yesterday someone came and asked me a question. Now, Swami Nasa, sometimes, you know, they start thinking like weird and wonderful things. And I, I always invite them, you know, do come and if something comes to mind, let's have a, have a conversation. So someone came and asked me. Swami Nasa, he, he asked me, why do we stop this uh, upadana process? Why do we stop the abhisankara process? Why, why would it not be better to stop the, this process? The Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankar Vijnana process. Why why do we stop that perception and not the perception of separation? Sorry, the other way around. Why do we stop the separation perception and not the Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankar Vijnana perception? Why why that way? And I, I left him with this, this one analogy and I said, if you get a little rock or a stone in your shoe, yeah, what do you do? You take the shoe off, you take the, the stone out, and you put the shoe back, right? You take the shoe off not because you want to take the shoe off. Why do you take the shoe off? Because you want to take the stone out, right? The stone cannot, be, cannot get in there and, and bruise your foot without the shoe, yeah? The stone can't do that without the shoe. That is why we take the shoe off and take the stone out. But, let's just imagine it was the shoe that was causing the bruise, right? Can you take the shoe off and keep the stone? Can you? Are you with me? <laughs> Can you take the shoe off and keep the stone? I mean, against your foot? You can't because it is the shoe that holds the stone in place and, and bruises your foot, right? So, the moment you take the shoe off, the stone is also taken out. So in that same manner, when you take out Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana, Rupa Abhisankara, Vedana Abhisankara, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana Abhisankara are taken out with it. You can't leave this and take this out. Because it is on the Rupa Vedana, Sanya and Sankara and Vinyana does the Abhisankara process happen. So you can stop this without this, but you can't stop this and keep this. In much the same way as you can Keep the shoe and take the stone out. But you can't keep the stone and take the shoe out. Because if you take the shoe off, then the stone goes out with it. So which one must we do? Taking the shoe off or taking the stone out? Why? What causes the bruise? Is it the, is it the shoe? No, it's just the stone. The shoe doesn't bruise, it's just the stone. So sometimes you might have to shake the shoe a little bit, maybe take it out for a brief moment, and turn it upside down, you know, give it a bit of a shake to drop the stone out, but you put the shoe back on. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, that is what we do in the sasana, right? We take the rupa vedana sanya sankara vinyana, we give it a bit of a shake, right? We dig deep, put our hands in there, see if we can find any, anything that is, that is cutting us, right? Any, anything that, that might cause a bruise. Take that out and put the shoe back on. That is exactly what we're doing here. So, abhisankara is the thing that has to stop. That is the stone in the, in the shoe, not the not the shoe itself. The shoe is okay because the shoe doesn't cut. Understood? Let us all take a moment then. To transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem. 
enchanting period, listening to the Dhamma, observing the precepts, inviting the Swami Nuhansas to deliver the sermon, and engaging in various other meritorious deeds today. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude. Let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who have since time immemorial projected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer these merits to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us take a moment to transfer these maids to my teacher, Guru Swami Nuhansi, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagari, the Nanagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these maids to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by translating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to friends of the monastery, our devotees, those who make great efforts to engage in various meritorious deeds to sustain the Mahasangha, to engage in merits in the name of Nibbana, from those who provide shelter as well as robes, arms and medicines for the upkeep of the monastics at the monastery and to those who extend their well wishes and their know-how. May they all rejoice in the merits that we have all acquired today. Let us also transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our elders, our teachers and those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. May they all rejoice in these merits, and by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And by the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, who sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, as well as those who lost their lives in the wars, be their friend or foe. Let us also transfer these merits to those who might have lost their lives in natural disasters, and catastrophes such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, pandemics, and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinite long journey of samsara, they will all have been family to us and friends to us, and those who will have helped us, supported and assisted us in any way, shape, or form possible and available to them. And therefore, may they all rejoice in these merits, and by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And may you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahatun or an arahatarin 
in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the noble triple gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. <coughs> Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.